Hiya, folks. Very happy to be here. It's a new year. New, 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 new president. I gotta say, feeling great. Inauguration hasn't happened yet. We're recording this a bit in advance, but uh, looking pretty good. Can't wait uh, to have uh, student debt eliminated. Uh, Two thousand dollar check. Cause uh, most of us we've been uh, jobless, and uh, you know. We got some maintenance to take care of, but uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Real happy about the Biden administration coming in. Cannot wait for uh, day one where he makes uh, a lot of the illegal residents or, or the um, undocumented peoples documented so uh, they can contribute to this uh, great nation of ours and uh, really push our country forward. And not backward like the other guy over here. And, uh, you know, we'll put an end to uh, Afghanistan and uh, hopefully Iraq and uh, get, make it, get our troops back home and end the war that's going on. Hopefully we'll have a national lockdown to get this goddamn virus under control. Holy shit. Too many people have died. We don't need any more people dying. There's too many. All, all those, those... Asylum seekers, so they could be, they could be let in, and uh, we, we could finally have, uh, you know, we, we can smoke a bunch of weed with them in in good old Texas, because he'll he'll finally sign the bill brought over by the Senate and the House of Representatives to, uh, you know, make weed legal and profitable. Oh, cannot wait. Really hope he doesn't break any promises. Oh. It'll be a damn shame, damn shame if he doesn't, if, if he deports anyone within 500 days of being in office. Oh, oh, man, making the $15 minimum wage an actual reality. Cannot wait. 2021. Oh, it's going to be all year. It's going to be all year. It's going to be great. Nothing bad is going to happen. Got all the bad stuff happen in 2020. See, that's the thing. This next next four years, we got all the bad of the next four years dumped in this this stupid fucking pandemic. That's all. All the bad is gonna be all bottled up in 2020. Now 2020 is over. It's 2021. We can move on. We can head move forward. Something better. We can finally. Oh my god. Oh, I completely forgot about this. We can finally get the joy out of the oh out of the postal service. The goddamn USPS can stop fucking with the mail. God damn it. Can finally get that fucker out. We're gonna get it. Oh, we'll finally get one step closer to uh, repealing the, the Hyde Amendment. 
and uh, we get one step closer to uh, Medicare for all. And <laughs> I mean, come on, anything's possible. We got like Democrats got control of the of the House and the Senate's and, and 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 now the executive branch. Like what? Like what? How could they mess us up? They they cannot. They have the power here. Okay, fine. The Senate is flip is 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 split down the middle. But guess who's the 51st vote for the goddamn Senate? Kamala Harris. And we can finally, finally, finally put the goddamn motherfucking Trump behind bars. Oh my god. Oh. After the the failed coup. Finally, finally, we could we could prosecute. We can like we can impeach him for real this time. Beyond the House, the Senate can actually vote vote on it and say this guy has got to go. The Republicans can actually seem decent for once in their goddamn life. Oh, that would be nice. Oh, and maybe, 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 maybe we can even get reparations. And maybe, maybe, maybe we can get reparations. Well, not me, of course. <laughs> it's not. It's not about me. That's the whole point of this, this campaign and this administration. It's not about me. It's about us. Cannot wait for another FDR through Biden. It's gonna be fantastic. Twenty twenty one. Here we come. There will be good. The midterms, we're just gonna glide right in because Trump was just such a fucking colossal fucking nightmare for the GOP and they don't know how to handle him. Oh, he won't be able to run in 2024. Oh, man, it's gonna be a great show here on Rant.exe. Oh, we're here to talk about uh, Crash 4. It's about a half-perfect sequel and book smarts blue beltway bent so please enjoy the show take it easy you don't have to worry about things anymore just just lay back and enjoy the show and please never think about politics again crash 4 could have been the perfect sequel for some, it is perfect. For me, it's a reminder of what I want in a platformer and especially a crash game. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but it pains me to toss stones at an otherwise great sequel because Crash 4 is a siren. It doesn't like you and it allures you in until misery clouds your temperament. Let's start with what catches our eyes, the presentation. Crash 4 loves the original Crash Bandicoot. You see that in the overall design and that echoes the island hopping 96 original. Warp room levels in previous Crash games are thrown together by difficulty with little thought of theme consistency. Why are we back in the jungle, you say? Wasn't that a warp room 1 level and now it's a warp room 5 level? All because the level is harder. This go round. Each dimension in Crash 4 ends with a boss fight, but the level beforehand is the peak of the challenge in that particular world theme. Since we're talking about levels, I cannot stress enough how distinct each level looks. It's near the point where you can just look at pictures of two different levels within a world and know if they are separate levels or not. Is it day or night? Does it involve a ton of cars? 
Are there hazards focused on minecarts? And are there boxes positioned in a way where you can avoid them? That last one relates to a level where, to get a special color gem, you must break zero boxes. Look at each level of Mosquito Marsh. Observe how it conveys different aspects of Louisiana. The fun and color of Mardi Gras, the wetland swamps, and New Orleans tight and flooded uh, alleyways and, and, and streets. Hey, wait a second. Uh, not cool, Toys for Bob? Uh, I, I, I don't know about that. Uh, anyway, um, what is rather rad is Toys for Bob introducing the flashback tapes. They are essentially the 2D bonus stages in regular levels to a triple wide length level without the new abilities in Crash 4. And I gotta say, it's the best aspect of the game. Discreet and brief 2D platformer puzzles that eases any issues someone will have with a 3D platformer and adds a layer of Dare I say, Crash Lore? In the time before Crash 1, Crash and Coco did trials to test their skills while Cortex and company commentate and assess. You obviously need to reach the end of the level, but there are some boxes to break. No frills or tricks. You will fail, but it's a hike instead of a summit. With Warped Onward, new abilities forced a critical path run, rather the ability to attempt a 100% run from the get-go. Warped Onward introduced a Metroidvania-like element to the mix. Gating pathways because you don't have the ability yet. Crash 4 foregoes all of that by making the new powers just sections of a level. It's honestly the best of both worlds where the gimmick of the ability feeds into the platforming, rather withholding pieces of the puzzle. And the actual mass powers shift the strategy so much in positive ways. The time slow mask turn nitro boxes into one second TNT crates. Face switching mask reinforces how precise your jump timing needs to be by making easy platforming into a challenge. Inverted gravity flips the perspective and tricks you into relaxing against easily avoidable hazards if you were right side up. No more trial and error to find out if you can reach an area or not if you don't have the right power available, like the super spin or the double jump, anything like of that matter in previous Crash games. The clarity Crash 4 presents goes beyond its powers. The cherry on top, or bottom, that you notice right away is the shadow under your character. Crash 4 would be leagues worse without the shadow and makes the issue with the 3D platforming shine brighter. Until it doesn't when you're eye level with your character and can't see the shadow at all and you fall to your death because it is a, a uh, side-scrolling perspective in a 3D space, so you are bound to fall to your death when you think there's, there's a box there you can jump. I, no, no. Crash 4 is not hard. It is not hard. It's mean. Big difference. Hard implies a challenge, a difficulty slider, something you can work toward and achieve. Cuphead is hard. Cuphead and Punch-Out conveys its variables clearly and beautifully. You learn the enemy's attacks by anticipating an animation and react. You learn by paying attention and following those breadcrumbs. 
mean game design punishes you for playing. Mean places an enemy behind a wall you can't see until they attack you. Arcade coin munchers by design hunt you growing first to the sky. Auto running sections, collectibles hidden by the camera in environments, overly long levels, Crash 4 reveals its hand that it wants to punish you for the sake of replayability. Hidden gems in Crash 4 live up to that name by being placed off-screen or obscure by the, the environment. Standard platforming auto-scrolling section like rail sliding and roll running work fine to change up the player-controlled pace of the level. Introduced in Crash 4, these new verbs, in a series known for breaking boxes for collectibles, conjure a new adjective to the series. Hassle. Hassle is what I would describe the pain rail sliding inflicts. Slide, hang, hang right, hang left, jump. Each rail sliding motion takes time. How much time? Just enough so you will, I, I don't know, jump too early and die or miss the box. All because the switch from hanging to sliding took forever. Throw in the tricky situation of breaking boxes while wall running. There's a thrown controller in your <laughs> future, and 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 look, it would not be Crash without the running to the camera or pet writing auto run sections. Crash Four brought those back, but but the frustration compounds when you notice how long these levels are. Speaking of long, let's take a quick break for a second. Level length in Crash 4 is the keystroke that turns my issues with Crash 4 from a multiple into an exponential for me. You will hope this is the final section of the level at the halfway point. For those who haven't played Crash 4, tank a gander at Relic Times between the Insanity trilogy and Crash 4. Introduced in Crash Warped, Relic Times were time trials, and because I'm broken, I I, I did the math. I took every level's Sapphire Relic, the um, first reward for Relic Times, that Sapphire Relic uh, time frame, from Crash 4 and Crash Insanity Trilogy. You know, the first three games, if that wasn't clear enough already by the trilogy namesake. The results? The average completion time for the trilogy is a minute 42 seconds. Crash 4's average is two minutes, 40 seconds, an added minute or 56% increase to the total time. However, average data doesn't paint the complete picture. That said, how does the median value, i.e. the middlemost value, stack up here? Worse! <laughs> Worse! Crash 4 median value is 2 minutes 46 seconds. Crash Trilogy median value is a minute 34 seconds, a difference of 77% more in Crash 4. And now for the most damning stab stat I have here. Only seven levels out of the 38 are under two minutes in Crash 4. That's 19%. The Trilogy? 
56 out of 76. 74%! And I know it sounds conflicting to praise how unique levels are when I also complain how annoyingly long they are. However, you can compare screenshots of two levels and know the difference in the original Crash Bandicoot while not overstaying its welcome. The original separated from the platforming to the auto-run sections as their individual levels. The beautiful Crash Landed level in Crash 4 packs so much in, I wish they separated the platforming from the obscenely long animal riding section. Why? Because I don't have to count the amount of times I died. I can see it. Crash Bandicoot's lives matter m more than it did before. Mm. Clunky, ironic, and oddly worded statement for today aside, modern platformers don't do lives anymore. Crash 4 gives the option to forgo a live system, which results in opening the gates to a meaner game. For example, there's a gem in each level with one goal. Don't die more than three times in a level. Simple enough, early on, you'll want to restart the level a fair amount. Uh, trouble is, the later levels push your death count up to the double digits. The death count gem further cements, well, <laughs> you sinking into the cement because it's a huge reminder of how bad you are at this game. All I experience is punishment. All I feel is punishment. I thought to myself, maybe the classic mode would remove the three deaths or less gem because you're dealing with lives. Nope, nothing changed beyond the extra challenge of adding a life system and if you run out of lives, you have to reset the entire level. Now that we're talking collectibles, oh boy, um, this next aspect is a doozy. Crash 4 saw crystals, gems, color gems, relics, and thought, why don't we add like 12 more types and put it in every level? Five level gems, color gems, inverted gems, relics, flashback tapes, medals for those flashback tape levels, insanely perfect relic, like, it's clutter. It's all clutter. All of it combines to make for a 34% final completion, even when you gave an effort, and not entirely critical path it. You can get a gem if you don't die more than three times in a level. Oh, and uh, if you die once in a level, you can't get the collectible of, of an additional 2D level, which are also the best part of this game. Then there's the reveal a third of the way into the game after beating a boss, every level has a mirror mode with the death gem the all-box gem, and the hidden gem. Granted, the inverted mirror mode visually intrigues me. Monochrome to color by breaking boxes, pop art look to it, colored pencil sketchbook drawings, oh, underwater filter or potato resolution for that real good 90s look. And yet, and yet, having to struggle for the same rewards in the same level, but flips horizontally and grayscaled and, you know, like some visual filters forms a bulging vein in my head. Worse yet, 
the infernal lore of character skins enter in Crash 4 not as microtransactions, but as unlockables through the number of gems you collect in a level. If you don't perfect the level, all boxes, three deaths or less, and a hidden gem, you will have to play the inverted version of the level for the unique skins. All these barriers just create a collectible game that demands so much out of the gate and doesn't let up. It all just screams anxiety and triggers the completionist scold in me. You missed that. Why even bother trying? Look at all these empty collectible space. Oh God. <clears throat> Look at all that empty collectible space up there in the shelf. If this were a test, you get an F. It ain't fun fe- It ain't a fun feeling knowing how little you did despite your struggle. I don't need that anymore. I'm done with school. The energy I have entering a level and leaving are two separate feelings. Three deaths or less, get most of the boxes, flashback tape, I got this if I restart a couple of times. Signing off, I'm sitting here with 20 plus deaths, 30 boxes miss, and a lol, no, tape because you have to make it halfway or 75% of the way there to the end of the level with no deaths. I was remarkably deflated by most crash levels by this challenge. See, the, the reference material was simple. Crystals were great because they were the basic story collectible everyone gets if you beat a level in the game. Bonus gems were optional and sparse comparatively to Crash 4. Not every level had a gem off down a different path, which Crash 4 again slots in every Crash and Coco level. I much rather play cl classic mode with the, with, the, with the lives and all that and grind out easier levels for a ton of lives. So 70 lives would be the, you know, the cost of doing business with the level. Removing the death-based rewards would ease the malice of the level design has for players. Then again, these problems, nitpicks if you will, would not lead me to my seismic nuclear take of preferring the original Crash 4 the original sequel to Crash Warped, Crash Bandicoot The Wrath of Cortex. Wrath of Cortex was a lesser Crash Warped on the PlayStation 2 generation. It was another publisher phoning in the resources and retreading what's done for a sequel because another one of these, they'll sell. Sure, the Rolly Ball levels were a great gimmick, but Wrath of Cortex lacked ambition. Now, Crash 4's ambition should be lauded. And make no mistake, without them, I would not have pushed through to see the end. Its shortcomings and frustrations come from this game's canary in the coal mine involving the Insanity Trilogy. The controversy around then showed Toys for Bob thought the original games were not challenging enough. A shaven hitbox made Crash easier to hit and harder to land compared to the original version. Now, the design of Crash 4 showed also too, Twister Bob did not want to separate the casual, you know, the beat the game type people and the hardcore, let's 100% this game experiences. Now that I mention it, separation is a noun I keep coming back to with Crash 4. Crash 4 separates in more negative ways than good. The carrot dangling, 
deliberate throws at replayability, and the choice between using lives or not, Hamstrong Crash 4 from soaring higher for me. Of course, that's just my opinion. I could be right. Booksmart doesn't want to acknowledge its own privilege and, well, delusion. I had a great time with the film. There's such a wonderful dynamic between the pro protagonist pair of Molly and Amy. Booksmart cements itself as part of the coming-of-age teen films to reflect the times of the day. And by its nature... Films like these will be wonderful time capsules because they are also so rooted in the now. And yet, by its release in 2019, it was already dated. No, not har har pandemic, because it's 2021 now. But the attitude and world Booksmart presents didn't even exist in 2019, I would say and not even in 2018 or 2017, and you can argue it maybe at the, at the latest, like 2016, as like the last grasp of Obama-era optimism. Oh, that's right, we're getting political here. Oh yeah. And I can't shake this read. The various implications embedded in the story and its one-off jokes just further reaffirm its point of view, and it grows more maddening. This came out in 2019. I'll get into it here, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but it's it's but it's wild to have politically active teen characters not even acknowledge Trump or MAGA. I could be wrong here. Am I asking for this film to insert MAGA somewhere? No, but it's painfully absent from a high school in 2019 when half the country voted for Trump and it's especially glaring when 25% of Los Angeles County voted for Trump. This like absence of Trump was, was like the first domino to topple toward like a wider quote unquote liberal angle Booksmart takes. It's more about the general socially liberal aspect here. A lot of media has some sort of liberal bent, quote-unquote, here. The thing is about that, it's it's really more about, like, diversity is profitable. And then media goes at the 18 to 34 demo that skews more diverse and empathetic. And a lot of creative types are borderline Nazis. It's not that hard. Booksmart would have fit nicely during the Obama years where a show like, oh, I don't know, for example, uh, Parks and Recreation can exist. This 
West Wing style of adults in the room take where there are good people with differing ideologies and the good people with the correct ideologies will win them over or outmaneuver them. And again, this is a 2019 film. There's a war in 2020 bumper sticker in a Black Lives Matter wall poster. And yet the overall like liberal fantasy Booksmart presents drags its Obama era nativity back into the spotlights. Our main character Molly has ambitions to be the youngest Supreme Court justice ever. The film starts with Molly listening to recording reassuring her mindset. Look down at your peers because they are and will not be as accomplished as you are or will be. They don't deserve your attention. Molly corrects bathroom graffiti grammar. She holds over her Ivy League acceptance over classmates by referring to Yale as New Haven, the city where Yale, the college, is. Molly is this... is she is that self-described policy wonk with a superiority complex. You see this later when Amy yells at Molly for being so controlling and dictating what Molly and Amy should do all the time. You see this once more when Molly and a theater kid get into it. Molly asserts debate is more important than theater. The theater kid retorts with, some of us enjoy working with other people. And Molly snaps back with, some of us like to win. Well, what does winning involve here? Winning involves being correct, right, perfect? Like, what, what does that mean? On top of this, Molly worships at the altar of the Obamas. Mind you, this is still a young, cis, white, girl here. Much like Leslie Nope in Parks and Rec, a picture of Michelle Obama and other powerful ladies like both Molly and Amy show great interest in hearing about Sasha Obama after hearing a party's waitstaff catered Sasha's Sweet Sixteen party. This desire and attention to hashtag girlboss attitude does not end. One character listens to Sheryl Sandberg's 2013 Lean In book in his car. No sense of irony or acknowledgement of, of the atrocities Sandberg let slide with her buddy Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. Just uh, acknowledgement that uh, Lean In is a Lean In is a worthwhile piece of literature and not a reminder of how girl power can be co-opted by evil. This is all to say, what are Molly's positions beyond power? What, what are our politics a game to be won by her? Molly reads as a type of person who extends their empathy for those just in quote-unquote blue states. Red states, ah, they get what's coming to them when they elect uh, Republicans or vote Republicans in Molly's view. You know, for, forget gerrymandering or for, forget, uh, you know, forget the may as well be half of the state who voted blue or the marginalized because the take is politics is a sport. Now even further, like how the how the film handles prejudice and conflict re resolution feels like another they go low, we go higher moment. We go so high that 2019 does not reckon with the fact that Trump is president or, or acknowledge any bigotry. It does not represent any prejudice or by any character. Everyone has minor issues with each other, but it's, you know, irrelevant once the speechifying happens. 
speeches and sentences resolve grudges and nasty rumors. All is forgiven because we understand each other and we're not that bad. To a point, sure, there it's a feel-good comedy, but it doesn't have to be a dang fantasy. The stink of the Obama era continues with the lip service to social and economic causes. Gender identity is briefly mentioned, yet no trans people are in the cast. They have gay characters, yet the most prominent ones are used like jokes. You're either flaming incredibly like the theater kids, or you're downbeat and, you know, kind of butch like Amy and her mean-spirited fling. Or sometimes you use your friend's sexuality as a way to get her out of the house. And it's done by making our parents uncomfortable because you're implying your friendship is actually a sexual relationship. I don't think many parents would want to hear their kid running off to go get banged. It's not pleasant. You saw him as a baby. Why? Don't want to think about it. Now let's take a quick break here and uh, we'll get into how... Booksmart handles race. Booksmart treats its black characters in an odd and not great choice. Firstly, Amy has intentions to go to Botswana to help make tampons for the locals there. Seems inoffensive enough and, and uh, you know, good-natured and, and, uh, and all that. Now, let me ask this. Do black countries like Botswana need white girls from America to make tampons? It asserts that this country does not have citizens who can make their own tampons. It implies America does not have a poverty problem where it could use fellow citizens to help others and make tampons affordable. No, we need a secular mission trip to Africa to provide aid and convert people to Christianity. Mind you, Amy's parents are Christians. One of the two black characters lies to Molly about an address to a party, diverts him to their party, and then the other, the cool teacher, sleeps with a student. And somehow the cool teacher, in the middle of the night, is able to pick up the protagonist, drive to the party, and have a wardrobe closet in their car for various body types and two of every dress at this point. I. 
It's almost magical, you could say. Now train our eyes on another adult who drives the pair around. The pair come across their principal who moonlights as a rideshare driver. They faintly agree with the principal that teachers don't get paid enough, but obviously not sincere about it because, well, they're in an awkward situation. They're in a lift with their principal, and he's driving. That's an uncomfortable power dynamic. And then Booksmart refuses to acknowledge why the principal works another job beyond wouldn't be funny if he's poor. Now, speaking of the poor, the only character who has family problems at all in this teen film is the uber-rich kid who can afford a private yacht party. And he's the most sympathetic guy here. The straight, white, wealthy dude who buys affection because he saw his family do it. His whole revelation and drive in life is simple. He just wants to make a bunch of money by making planes, then be the good rich person and fund original Broadway shows. How noble. It's good that this rich person wants to dictate some part of society. It's not like the money towards his yacht party could have been, I don't know, used toward the that original goal and receive a producer credit so he gets a return on the successful place he, he's funded. Okay. Okay, taking it back a bit there. Raining in back in the plot. That's, that's, that's far enough. That said, everyone is rich in this film, it feels like. Every house you see in this film is a mansion. The theater kid? Nick's aunt's house? Even Amy's house is rather large. And you're expecting me looking at her and think, okay, you know, quote unquote, middle class. You don't think about the main characters coming for money, but consider this is LA. They very much root this in Los Angeles. They mention it by name. It's locations and the houses you can see like, oh, that looks like Hollywood. The county of LA's median house price is over 500K. That's half a million, not the city, the entire county. Look up your county to notice how huge the cap is in price. My county's median rate is around 170,000 in my county. 500K median is rich. That's, that, 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 that is, is pretty rich for a county. Much like the real byproducts of the rich, the kids here look at the uber rich kid and think he's just, he's just rich. Grass is always greener, like, 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 oh, like, I'm not that rich. Little self-reflection of how decent they have it. Like, a, a failure to see their own privilege in that manner. Now, rich privilege struck me here in Booksmart. The whole jumping off point of this film is two white women seeing, quote-unquote, slackers get into Ivy League schools. Instead of thinking good for them, it's an earth-shattering revelation. For one, it's seeing their lessers succeed while goofing off, having their cake and eating it too. As part of the film's theme, it's a good reminder that success doesn't always have to come at a cost. It doesn't always have to be like that. And yet the film reminds of something a bit meaner in reality. Something that we're really just, you know, hammering away here at the, at the discourse something we were seeing today. It's this bitterness you see when talking about canceling student loan debts. These quote unquote slackers didn't pay off their loans like I did. They didn't get a scholarship or opted to work 
double shift to pay off their loan. Why should they get a pass when I had to suffer? It's always seen as a zero-sum game rather than a net gain. That in and of itself is fairly ironic because it seems like the entire class is going to Ivy League schools. I mean, brought up as a joke, but it doesn't analyze how one high school has so many prestigious incoming freshmen going to Ivy League schools. Are they legacy? Do they have powerful parents? Did they test well and not brag about it like Molly did? Even worse, one of the few people who decided not to go to college instead had a job lined up after high school. Key point, that job is working for Google making, you know, mid six figure salary. Um, what is six figures, but um, over 100K, so that means mid uh, six figures. Is, that's around 500K a year out of high school. You know, like I said, like a half a million, uh, about the same um, amount, of like, like a median, median amount of uh, just to buy a house. Um, that That is going to be his salary out of high school at Google. What? Where are the state school enrollees, the community college enrollees? Where are the trade school enrollees? Where are the, where are the dropouts? Where, where are the gap years beyond Amy and, and her fling? It's, it's all white collar. There's little working class representation in, in, in this. It's, it's all centered on this, 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 this perspective where it's like they're gonna go to a great school and things are gonna work out for them. Now let's get back to a minor plot point of, of Nick and his aunt's fancy LA home. Heck, the film doesn't analyze just who the aunt is. It's just assumed everyone knows who it is. Judging by the pool and scenic view on the hill, you bet the ant is famous and has a multi-million dollar home. And this, folks, lands right on my last point with Booksmart's privileged characters. Some are played by people who already have Hollywood connections. The daughter of Carrie Fisher in Gigi, uh, which is one of the best characters in this film, I would say, and the sister of Jonah Hill in Molly. Jonah Hill, who also starred in uh, Superbad, which this film, Booksmart, has been compared to a lot to. Just just a interesting note there. This is just how Hollywood works and will continue to work. Dynasties are seen as a, as a good thing. It's good that there's some ne nepotism going on there, right? Now, maybe... This movie wasn't for me. I aged out of the optimism and have been over a decade away from high school. Every year brings a new dynamic for kids to learn how the world operates. My slow radicalization through the failures of Obama on, on, on ending Lee of the Trump administration had shifted my outlook. The refusal to look at the ugly is what brought us here. That's what drove Amy and Molly apart late in the film. They refused initially to make their bond stronger by addressing underlying issues with their relationship. They didn't want to work it out. Bottled up, all came out. Thinking everything's fine because there are no wolves in the hen house. It's just an oversight when sheep's clothing is cheap and the wolves are rich. Of course, that's just my opinion. I could be right.